Hello, uglies, and welcome to the Belay Brothers Creatures of the Night on the Fangoria Podcast Network. Before we get to the show, we want to tell you about Fangoria.com. It's a little crazy out there right now, so Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to our listeners. All you have to do is go to Fangoria.com and make an account. You'll then have full access to exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the original run of Fangoria magazine, which is quite a treasure trove. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand. You little freaks might also enjoy Satanic Panic and Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich, streaming now on Shudder. Now let's dim the lights, turn up the volume, and let the show begin. Now, from Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, Fangoria presents the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Hello, darlings, and welcome to another episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night podcast. This is Flight 666, Straight to Hell. I'm Swanthula, and I'll be with you the entire ride. Up in first class, we have Drag Morta tonight. Drag, darling, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, and I'd like to welcome everybody to first class. I'd like to remind you to please unbuckle your seatbelt so that when I hit the eject button, you fly right out of this plane. <laughs> if you want to take a look at those dinner menus, you'll see you have no choices tonight. You'll be eating exactly what we'll be serving. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride if you can. <laughs> I, was, I was like, okay, we're going to start off this way tonight. All right, I'm on my toes. Oh, she really came that way. I got it. <laughs> All right. So, well, yeah. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of our podcast. We hope you enjoyed the first one. I'm sure the ratings are exploding through the roof right now, and you just can't wait to hear what we have to say again this episode. So, I think we should get right into it. How are you doing? I'm, I think all things considered, I'm okay. I mean, I can't tell if we're on day 90 or day 900 of this shelter in place. Um, you know, time has no meaning. Uh, I've been having like strange dreams. I can't sleep. It's like kind of borderline insomnia, but I'm also like super busy. So I'm kind of, I don't know, maybe when my life is in, in danger, I'm like, Super productive and creative, right? <laughs> Crazy you say that because when we're in bed and I look over, you seem to be sleeping just fine the entire night. So I'm not really real sure what you're talking about, but sure. Okay. You have insomnia. Well, listen, no, I'm, I'm saying like, you know, we've been keeping crazy hours. Like we're not going to bed till like four or five in the morning. A lot of our friends and neighbors are doing the same. You know, the sleep schedule is kind of flipped because there's no, it seems like no pressure, right? The whole world is just stopped. No, it does. Okay, this is a little behind the scenes, but in the adjacent tower of our <laughs> <The> domicile, <laughs> there's a, 
an older lady who uh, lives in the adjacent tower, and she is keeping very strange hours. And we have decided we thought she was dead for a minute because uh, basically she watches TV twenty four hours a day. Yeah, and you can just see the back of her head and her gray hair. Yeah, and we thought uh, maybe she had died at some point, but she didn't because. We saw her downstairs. So, well, also she has the most eclectic and amazing taste in television because we can see the back of her head, so we can see what she's watching on television, sort of in the background. And it's like uh, Return of the Jedi, all of these old like Star Wars movies. She's watching Game of Thrones. She's watching Justice League cartoons. I'm like, we need to hang out. Like, once this clears, like we're going to spend some time with the granny next door. All right. So before we get started today, why don't we? Catch everybody up with what's going on in our world. Okay, well, I think that we're looking down the barrel of the fourth season of the Boulay Brothers Dragula. I think all eyes are on us, and people are really curious about the fourth season. Uh, we've said it enough now publicly that it's definitely happening, and I know that people are excited about that, which gives me a great thrill and also a gigantic spike of anxiety. How do you feel about that? I feel, you know, always when we... uh when we agree to do a new season, it's stressful and it gives me a lot of anxiety as well. So I can relate to that just because, you know, we know, I, I know what we're about to under, you know, I know what we're about to take on and it's always scary and intimidating. I think uh, everybody on the team feels that way too. So we're sort of the first line of defense. So once we're like, yes, let's sign our name. And then we're like, okay, now we really have to do this. I mean, it's exciting because you know, so many new moments are going to be created and the content's going to be really good, but it's just, it's a lot of pressure. So, you know, with the pandemic happening too, and kind of agreeing to do that in the middle of that, it's, it's a little stressful, but you know, I know we will rise to the occasion and uh, make it amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of very much like getting on flight 666 straight to hell and not buckling your safety belt and just hoping that you land and you, and you get there with like a happy face and a, and a smile. Yeah. I mean, we're also working on a new digital production. We, I think we're going to do one more before we sort of bow out of all that, but it was fun doing the first one. I don't know how many of you saw our um, theater macabre show that we did, which is like kind of like a live mixed with movie uh, experience, digital drag experience that we did. I think we're going to do another one of those because it's kind of fun to just flex our creativity in a different way. Um, we're working on that. Oh, and also very exciting for this episode of the Blade Brothers Creatures of the Night. We have a special guest, Dita Von Tees, is going to be joining Ooh, us. I can't wait. Yeah, so we're going to be interviewing her, and that's going to be really fun. You know, she's really just a dark beauty and a icon in her own right. And, um, you know, we've worked with her a lot in the past, and it's exciting to be able to sit down and have a real conversation because a lot of times we're backstage, and, you know, you kind of talk about worky stuff, but you don't really get to have a real conversation. There's a lot of things I kind of want to ask her just about her career and how she got started and all that sort of stuff. So she's going to be joining us in a little bit, but I am a little nosy. So I do have some, you know, deep questions for her. Don't but, call it nosy. Yeah. I call it thorough. It's intriguing. You're interested. I think you're genu- I, you're genuinely inspired by what they actually think. It's not surfacy and, you know, fluff. You want to know what's under the skin. Well, that's one of the things that I wanted to do with this podcast was when we interview people, I want to really interview them. I want to ask them real questions about what they really think about things. Because even us, when we get interviewed a lot, it's so fluffy. And the questions are just things that people have already asked you or things that everybody knows. And, you know, I like those questions. I want people to be able to get to know us better. And the same thing when I interview someone else, I want 
you know, I really want them to answer the question to go a little deeper than what are you working on now? You know, like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> the, fluff, the fluff questions are fun the first time and they're even fun like the fourth time. But after that, it's like, you know, you do kind of get thirsty for something of, of interest, like something you could actually discuss that might be new for fans or listeners that don't know. Um, they, they know those kind of things about you already and they want to learn something new. So uh, I, I know we'll be fielding some of those questions for Dita. Yeah, one thing I want to say about Dita quickly too is um when we were doing our first parties back in the day, we used to work with Dita a lot and we hired her to do our Halloween balls and things like that. And we this was before we were you know, we did drag, but we didn't do drag as the Boulet brothers. And we would perform in a lot of live stage shows and stuff ourselves. We would direct them and write them and coach everybody in the shows. And I always reference Dita when we're coaching other performers to look at what Dita does because she's one of the only performers I know that moves so precisely. I mean, she knows exactly what she's going to do from like the flutter of an eyelash to her. You know, everything she does is on purpose. And I just think it's so impressive. And I think any performer should really look at that. It's not everybody's style. Some people are a little more wild and that works for them. But if you're trying to put on that sort of presentation, kind of presentation that she does, I think she's the best example to look to for inspiration. Yeah, Jack, you'd be like more one of those like wild bitches who kind of like flail around in the moment. Oh, you know me. <laughs> I mean, honestly, back in the day, maybe, right? But not I mean, maybe. No, honestly, I think Dita's aesthetic really speaks to you. She is super, It is. it is flawless. It is meticulous. I remember the first time seeing her in person. And at the time, it was a smaller venue before she blew up and before we blew up. And she might have been four feet from me. And I was just like a little kid on Christmas with the cheesiest smile watching this gorgeous creature just move like like a dream. Every little flick of the wrist and like you said, flick of the lash uh, was just perfectly timed. It was spellbinding. Absolutely. It's so it, it runs so parallel with drag performance to me, burlesque and everything that she does. Um, well, with good drag performance (laughs) 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 anyways i think we should move on to what's going on in the world today which means we should bring in our trusty co-host mr ian devoglier hello ian you want to join us hello how are you guys today pretty good good. how are you Good. I'm doing all right today. Uh, kind of going with what Swan said, all things considered, uh, today is great. And I get to record with you guys, which is always a highlight. We did a really good job with you. I mean, you <laughs> always give the right answers. And you know what? I don't even care if you're lying. It's what I want to hear. <laughs> I do think that there will be a time where like, I'll go into the Boulay's lab and I'll see all the failed experiments. I'll have to torch it. Uh, but until then, here I am. Happy. <laughs> well, I still think it's weird that we can't record this face to face like it still trips me out a little bit like i'm looking forward to that but honestly i feel like we're adapting to the format pretty easily what do you think uh yeah i mean i think it's great we we talk all the time the three of us are always in meetings so it's not really the most foreign concept and i do have a picture of you guys hanging in my uh swanky recording studio closet so you're not too far away Come out of the closet, Ian. You don't have to stay there. <laughs> so much better. I have to say, uh, at first, when I understood that we would be filming like apart from each other, at first it made me feel concerned, like we wouldn't have a flow or it might impede our exchange. But now I'm like really comfortable with the fact that you guys aren't in my face. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, let's. <laughs> well, on that note, Ian, why don't you? Tell us what we have to discuss today. What's going on in the world of entertainment and horror and drag filth and glamour? <laughs> what have you brought before us tonight? 
today, uh, our first sacrifice. Um, as you said, we're still sheltering in place here in LA. And I think quarantine has been on my mind really heavily. And I think it's been on kind of everyone's mind. Um, there are a ton of news outlets reporting on the effect of the pandemic and what scientists are referring to as like shared pandemic anxiety dreams. Oh, yes. I read about that as well. That just hit a nerve. Yeah. Well, you were talking about that earlier, actually, uh, insomnia and having disturbing dreams. Are you experiencing that too, Ian? Absolutely. I, I have not been going to bed until like five or six. I feel like every morning when we have a phone call, you're like, did you just wake up? I'm like, yeah, it's two in the <laughs> afternoon. I just got up. Um, but no, I've been having crazy dreams and I thought that maybe I was the only one but after I did a little digging it's like HuffPost, BBC, New York Times, National Geographic, everyone is reporting that uh, especially in heavy epicenters where the pandemic is really hitting hard, people are reporting up to like four times as many anxiety or panic nightmares related to the pandemic. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I saw too on that uh, that there's research groups in France and London that are looking into it as well. So it seems like to be something that's growing and a lot more people are starting to notice. That's kind of creepy. Totally. I love this idea of like this shared like kind of like psychological web uh, that e- even in sleep that we're all kind of connected because we're experiencing these pressures and stresses uh, together. So when we retract into the sleeping world, it kind of makes sense that there's a there's a shared anxiety there as well. I might come and visit you tonight in your dream to terrify <laughs> you a little bit more. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting point because one of the things that I'm reading that people are having these dreams about is they're being scared of being hugged or touched by someone else. So, Hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. So that their panic dreams are about they're going out and someone's coming up and hugging them or breathing on them or something like that. So absolutely, you know, has to do with the pandemic and weird. Mostly when I have panic dreams about people coming up and touching, it's usually when you guys are, you know, in full drag at a meet and greet and someone comes up with their like grubby hands and say, no touching. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jack, what freaks you out more? Like, the pandemic and the world, the idea of this, like, shared web of, like, scary dreams and, like, this, you know, psychic, dark psychic miasma as we sleep, or you're at a meet and greet and someone comes up and tries to touch your hair? I think the hair touch is scarier. Well, it's more <laughs> annoying. Here's the thing, and I want it just for people out there that go to meet and greets, uh, especially with drag artists. As you will know, there is usually some sort of helmet, hair, something happening on us. So if you go to hug someone that you're coming to see in a meet and greet, and you put your arm around them, and your arm is also on their hair pulling it down, and you notice that their (laughs) chin is pointing to the ceiling, that's why, because you're about to rip their fucking hair off. So just watch that. Oh, my God. I have another topic to bring, which is, uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but in Indonesia, there are villagers in this village called Kepa. Uh, I might be butchering that and I apologize, but they're dressing up as these ghosts in order to scare people from going outside and violating the quarantine. Yes, I did see that, actually. Did <sighs> you see that, that so song? much? I uh, know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, right? This is like my favorite thing that I've seen or read about in a, like a really long time, like these... Um, you know, in that culture, the super the supernatural plays like a really big part of their folklore, their everyday life. And these people, I didn't re- hear that per se, but I heard that um, there are these villages in Java or whatever where people that aren't um, respecting the shelter in place and the social distancing, they are literally jailing them in local haunted houses. They're being punished by. <gasps> well, I didn't po- see that. Yeah, <laughs> look into it because it's kind of amazing. And and they're literally locked up in there and and uh, monitor and not allowed to leave because they were. Uh, disobeying the shelter in place and the social distancing. 
one that I read, and this might be different, was that the pol- the local police were working with like a youth group, and so the uh-huh. ghosts and the people playing ghosts were young kids, and I guess they're uh, imitating a particular kind of spirit. It's like a folk spirit called like a pon kong. I don't know if I'm butchering that word either, but it's like they're all white, shrouded in white and white faces. Kind of looks like a look we would wear. My God, pon <laughs> kong. <laughs> Like like the Queen magazine shoot. Um, right, exactly, yeah. Totally. I saw also that apparently uh, when they first started doing it, and this makes sense to me, it was having the opposite effect. Like uh, when word started to get out that there were these, you know, ghosts around the city, people would come out and it was like a tourist attraction. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> I, yeah, right. I'm like, oh my God, that is some ghoulish shit that I would totally do. Um, but apparently it's working now. So uh, they're, they're more, I guess they're less trying to scare people and more tell them that if you go outside, you're going to die. Which I can't believe this is the world we live in. I mean, I can, but holy shit. Well, if you can't believe that, I mean, imagine if that happened in the United States. Like, I mean, it would turn into like a zombie pub crawl or, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, (laughs) what kind of ridiculous foolishness? Um, What other topics do you have for us today? Uh, Last thing that I have is uh, in order to keep people inside and not you know, dress up as ghosts, there are a ton of these haunted historical sites that are going virtual with like 360 degree online tours or video tours. Some of them are free. Some you just had to pay for, but just kind of a short list like Pharaoh Ramses the sixth. There's some Chernobyl sites, uh, the Paris catacombs and even the Winchester mystery house are all doing these virtual tours. I love that. I think that is so fun because it's, you know, especially because we're all trapped inside, we can't you know, leave at all, much less some of these exotic locations. It's so cool that you can just go online and, and do a tour. Although, you know, I, we all were in the catacombs earlier this year. Yeah, just a few months ago. Yeah, and you can, you really can't, you know, it's not the same experience to watch it online. You guys know when we were there, there's like a certain amount of uh, weird energy just being there that you can experience. And also kind of claustrophobia, like the tunnels get really small and you're walking for a long time and you're like, okay, if there was a collapse, there's absolutely no way that we would get out of here. Totally. I feel like, you know, you can't capture exactly what it's like. And for me, that feeling, and we talked about this when we were in the catacombs, there's a certain point when you're walking through that you realize, oh, these were all people. There's millions of, of bodies and who had existences. And if you believe in a soul who had souls and it's just, it starts to become, I don't know, kind of almost romantic and fabulous and dark and strange. And I don't know, I, I totally encourage people to look up these virtual tours. Um, you know, you can go to experience Egypt's Facebook page for Pharaoh Ramses. If you Google the Chernobyl virtual tour, you can find those, uh, the official Paris catacombs website has their tour. I totally encourage people to do it. How, how about the Winchester Mystery House? I think I want to check that one out. That one, uh, let's see. You can go to winchestermysteryhouse.com. Uh, there are a couple of different options. I know one is they do like a stream and you can pay to see that one. Or you can also pay to do the 360 degree virtual tour anytime. We should all pick one and do one. And then when we come <gasps> on for the next episode, we'll talk about it. Yeah, I think that sounds so oh, fun. This, yeah, I've, I've never really done anything like that. So this seems like the perfect opportunity and a great reason to do it and then share our uh, our feelings about it. Totally. And Ian, please don't be cheap. Get the three sets of you, okay? <laughs> no. I know how you are. You'll try to get some kind of like underground link to watch it upside down or something. Listen, I'm going to find us a group on. All we have to do is get 15 other people to virtually tour with us and we'll get a $2 discount. It's great, guys. I love that for you, but don't try to pull that shit. 
<laughs> look, I'm super excited. The only things I've been virtually touring are apartments. So I'm really excited to virtually tour uh, Chernobyl and the Paris Catacombs. Very good. All right. Well, I think this is a great time to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by a hauntingly gorgeous dark beauty and the queen of modern burlesque, the one and only Miss Dita Von Teese. Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003. Offering a wide range of products from your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Coming May 12th, shopping will cost you an arm and a leg as Fright Rags unleashes its brand new collection for Chopping Mall. Featuring four brand new t-shirts, all officially licensed and available at fright-rags.com. Listeners get 10% off when they use code Boulay 10. Now it's time to introduce our special guest for this installment of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. She is an icon of both darkness and glamour, the legendary Dita Von Tees. Dita Darling, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? I'm I'm good, all things considered. I've been hemmed up in the house for weeks, but um, we found fun ways to reach out to fabulous people and uh, still stay connected mm-hmm. to the world. Thus, mm-hmm. here we are together. Yes, indeed. Well, we never got to sit down and just say, hi, you know, and actually talk about things in a situation yeah. like this. We're always backstage. So I thought it'd be fun to kind of have you on and like actually have a real conversation and catch yeah. up and just, yeah. yeah. I know Love like it. fans are like, very interested in more, learning more about you. So I thought this would be a perfect opportunity while we're all trapped at home in the pandemic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you know, cause you have, you do have a, I think, well, from the outside, it, it appears to be a very cultivated mystique. And that world is like filled with like glamour and kind of like smoke and, you know, mirrors, if you will. And I think seeing mm-hmm. through it uh, is, is a difficult thing. And I'm sure that you've worked hard to maintain that mystique. Yeah, I mean, kind of. But also, when I think about when I first started, a lot of that mystique had to do with shyness and trying to kind of just do my thing and put what my work out there, but keep boundaries about, you know, my personal life or whatever. But um, and also, yeah, definitely trying to build mystique with, with, you know, regard to like, aesthetics you know i'm a a blonde girl from a farming town in michigan and i kind of like when i first started in the early 90s and i had like one of the first um adult websites that existed in the early 90s and um i was really like you know had a real mystique because i didn't um people didn't have i didn't have a voice you know really to go with the images so people didn't know where i was from and then i dyed my hair from blonde to black and started like playing this part and you know there was a there was a lot of mystique you know but over time i became less shy <laughs> um, yeah. by choice <laughs> you know and and also saw the advantages of like letting people know who i am and 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 you you know using my voice to kind of tell people why I've always loved burlesque and glamour and fetishism and um, pinup and why I looked to the past and, and, and why I built a mystique in the first place, which was because I felt kind of like shy and, um, you know, wanted to make my mark on the world and find my own confidence. So I think like learning to convey my story instead of just guarding it became um, 
you know, part and an asset, in fact, which it's not always easy to like reveal who you are to people. <laughs> because no, it's there's, not. There's, there's risk, you know, but it, it also, um, you know, let's, it inspires people to kind of do the same, maybe find their confidence with, you know, the kinds of things that I'm, you know, known for. So that kind of leads into the first question that we have for you, which is, you know, the idea of Didavantes is filled with like mystique and glamour and a lot of very specific imagery. But how much of what we see is actually you or are we seeing a persona? Like is Dita someone that you put on as a costume for work or are you one and the same? Um, I mean, definitely one and the same. I don't think I have, I never tried to change my personality. Like I've seen people do that, you know, where they're like, I am going to become glamour and I'm going to mm-hmm. speak glamorously and become what I want to be. And I, I never did that. I always felt like part of, you know, what it makes someone interesting. I, I like authenticity, you know, I always, sure. I, I still like, I like play. I like the like dualities and multifacets and like good girl, bad girl. I like that, you know, Heather Sweet from the farming town in Michigan is still who I am and who I feel like, but I can play with this, the image of the opposite. And so when you bring kind of like opposites together, it's, you know, where things become interesting. I think it's like, I, I just, I've seen this before where people are like, I'm going to have this like image. And I don't know, I feel like you can kind of see through it and it feels a little put on. And one of the things that I love the most in um, like a, like a show in showbiz in general is when you um, see uh, someone's like flaws, mistakes, childishness, playfulness, you know, all these other things and not just like someone who's trying to be sexy or trying to be powerful or trying to be, you know, having a combination of like vulnerability and strength and, and like, you know, really being authentic and, you know, that, that, becomes kind of like touching to people to share yourself that way. So I don't know. I just never wanted to try to like make this big glamorous persona that was about how I talk to people or how I, you know, I just, it's, you know, it's not, I I like aesthetics. (laughs) I'm an aesthetic control freak. I love (laughs) playing. I, I love playing an elaborate game of dress up and I love creating fantasy and spectacle and all that sort of thing, but I don't have any, you know, need to try to like impress people with my, you know, fancy words or trying to speak perfect French, or I'm going to be this person who's glamorous all the time. Like I just don't, it's not, yeah, my, my, I never tried to cultivate my personality. No, it's interesting because, you know, when people see uh, someone like you who has their, their image is so larger than life in the sense that people see pictures of you and beauty ads and they see you on stage and stuff and they don't get as much opportunity to experience your personality you know do you find that people have expectations of you uh to be those things that you're that you feel are inauthentic you know like when you meet people uh in person do they ever put that on you sort of or is that uncomfortable yeah i mean yeah i mean in so many ways throughout my life whether it was in a romantic way with you know dating um has always been you know a a thing where it either works or doesn't work because you you either have to live up to what they want you to be or it's just too much for them or um but yeah i mean and i've always been like a do-it-yourself kind of gal and there's nothing that you know I, i there's nothing that i 
ask other people to do for me that I don't do myself. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, a. Uh, I think people are usually surprised by, by that. You know, we had, mm-hmm. while, while I was getting ready for my, um, tour you know we had in my house like a team of people we were 3d printing things and and uh glittering them and rhinestone them and it's like i'm covered in glitter and i'm not trying to like you know i'm not i I love doing that i love getting my hands dirty i love to get involved i love to make sure i know like everything that i'm asking other people to do for me i know how to do too to a degree of course i feel like that's the best way to be because it's especially you know we run into similar things with with drag you know people helping with wigs or costumes but it's like if you let it get too far out of control then it's almost like you're not in control of your own image and you become dependent on other people so Mm -hmm. i think it's smart to stay i mean i think yeah you have to delegate though too there came a point in my career where i was like i can't do i want to do this but i can't and i have to like think about where i'm putting my time and Mm -hmm. and get trust other people to do things too but um being a do-it-yourselfer has always been kind of like my thing you know that's like how i started in the 90s and even even now like when i do a big photo shoot a lot of times i'll double team to be efficient like i'll have somebody do my hair while I'm doing the makeup or I'll have somebody do the makeup and then I'll do my hair. So I just, you know, like you have to, you think about like efficiency too and, and the yeah. do it yourself aspect of things, you know, mm-hmm. certainly. I think that circles back to what you were saying earlier about not asking people to do something that you're unwilling to do or unknowledgeable to do because, um, you know, similarly coming from production and being on stage and, and doing makeup and doing hair, when we do shows or we're, we're traveling and touring and things like that, I'm sure you have this kind of experience too. We're able to say, Oh, I know what it's like to be backstage and doing this for someone. And I know what it's like to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stressed about making the show look just right. So we afford all the people around us those, those same kind of considerations. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you have done all the, like a lot of those things yourself, like, you know, me and Catherine Delish used to load up her van with our martini and champagne glasses and drive out to Texas and do shows, you know, and we, yeah. used, to, we used to pick those suckers up by our, together and, you know, and be our own stagehands or, or at least tell somebody how to do it, you know, do it in a, in a smart way. But I've had, you know, I've had people look at me and be like, oh, you know, we're going to need uh, about 10 guys for this. I'm like, no, you're not. Watch this, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or going to prop builders. So, one one story I remember was, you know, I have a, I've one of the first big prop things that I did was make these clawfoot bathtubs and I covered them in glitter and I had to delegate this job to a prop guy and they put the wrong color glitter on uh, one of these bathtubs once and they go, well, this is going to be like a ten hour job for us to redo this. And I go, it is. And they go, yeah. I go, no, I have like four bathtubs that I've done with my own two hands. I just sent it over. You guys do it. And they go, well, this is what it's going to be. I go, listen, you guys sandblast your your mistake off of the thing. And I'm coming over tomorrow and I'm going to do it. And they go, yeah, you're welcome to. And I did. And I got over there and I, I you know, had my little speaker, put on some music and I busted that thing out in under two hours. And I, was I done. fucking love this image. Was, oh my God. Like, all these like dudes like staring at me going what, like, what she, you know, okay, she's going to show us. And I did it in like under two hours and, and by myself. And yes. I was like, thanks guys. Like they wanted to charge me like $5,000 or something. And I was like, this is like an hour long 
process, you guys. That's so, what you know, keeps you from getting ripped off, too. Uh, to know I mean, I do my best. But yeah, believe me, there's a lot of things where it's like, yeah, because uh, you know, I have the experience of all this stuff, like figuring out how to do it myself or with me and Catherine together. Um, you know, we you know we do have to delegate jobs but you know we're constantly you know having to kind of you know remind people that we're not just like a pretty face yeah could you make me this thing no it's like (laughs) i have a question about these clawfoot tubs though was there like a a handheld feature where you could kind of like water yourself that kind of came from the tub yeah this was the show that you did this was the yeah it was a freestanding like um water you know clawfoot bathtub that would work in the middle of the stage and at the time at, at this party we're talking about years ago earlier at the dragonfly the um stage handling and running the production backstage and getting that clawfoot tub out there was part of <laughs> it fell under my umbrella like, are you I was serious like, no, i am serious and so i remember i now as you're saying this story i'm like wait a minute i know this clawfoot tub <laughs> was it the gla- was it the gla- plexiglass one or was it a glitter one i had like a I like six or seven of them at this point glitter honestly i don't remember i was just so impressed that it had the handheld water feature thing so i think this is the first time i had seen you live and you were just out there and there was glitter and sparkle but the water and i was just you know it was it was a magical moment Oh, thanks. We all, you know, me and Catherine Delish, she showed me the power of water on stage and how to make it happen. So she and I have always tried to like figure out how to get water on stage. I think one of the fetish parties, we used to have this waterfall, like this big flower waterfall. And it it, it was, I think we did it at fetish ball. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's always water and glitter and, uh, you know, just magic formula is like, titties and water it's like classic you know so we're always like what do we do get more water in the show for a belay brother stage show same titties and (laughs) water titties and water you know add a little bit of soap and it's even better (laughs) you're obviously inspired by like vintage clothes and fashion and design and all like what do you think fuels your attraction to other time periods well i first started shopping for vintage because I, you know, growing up in the eighties in orange County in high school, I went to kind of a school where people had all all the cool jeans and the cool sneakers. And that that was kind of popular. I grew up like around kind of like the surf crowd. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't, I kind of started buying vintage because I couldn't afford like cool designer clothes. So that's really where it started and trying to get like a, you know, fashionable look. Um, in my own way. So that was the first thing because back then you could buy vintage clothes for not that much. You know, people didn't weren't as interested in, um, fifties clothes, thirties, forties and fifties as they are now. Mm-hmm. So, um, it started there, but I think it just like growing up as a dishwater blonde, you know, I felt kind of like my, mo- my mother watched old movies. You know, I've told this story a lot, but I grew up around, you know, vintage movies from the 30s and the 40s and 50s. So those were like, that was a big imprint on me as a little girl. Sure. And I kind of grew up thinking that that's what ladies look like. <laughs> and, um, and then also I wanted to be a ballet dancer. So I loved ballet and the glamour of ballet. So I think like all of these things coming together kind of, you know, made me who I am now or made me want to be this person. So uh, I started, you know, playing with red lipstick when I was, uh, you know, in high school. And uh, it kind of just like when I graduated from high school in 1990, (laughs) um, I 
had the, I was dating this guy. Like I just broke up with my boyfriend. I was dating an older guy and he took me to an electronic dance music party in Los Angeles the year that I graduated from high school. And that changed everything for me because I met all these club kids I started dating like the one of the big rave promoters and it was kind of like I was hanging around all these drag queens and club kids. That's how I met Eddie um, and a lot of these uh, and, and Raja, Sutan. We, we mm-hmm. all met each other in Orange County in the early 90s um, in you know Orange County in LA and the electronic dance music scene. So that was kind of like where everything shifted and I felt more free to mm-hmm. uh, be even more eccentric with my my style. And then from there, I kind of, you know, I always dressed, been known for dressing in like vintage style, but there was also a period in my life where I, in the early nineties, like from 94, 93, 94, 95, uh, where I was big in like the swing dance scene, which was a huge mm. thing in LA and orange County. Um, could totally see so that. I kind of like really got into it then. You know, my boyfriend dressed in head to toe vintage. We had vintage cars that we drove around and we went swing dancing um, you know, I hung out in the rockabilly scene a lot. I was dating Mike Ness from social distortion for a couple years. So that was this kind of like, you know, always circling around this like vintage scene in the nineties. And that was kind of really, you know, so it was kind of a, <laughs> all through the nineties is where I was, you know, making pinup photos and starting to make burlesque shows and working in a strip club and working as a fetish model. So it's kind of all, you know, big snowball. I love this this idea of what you mentioned earlier about being imprinted, um, seeing the movies that your mother was into and the way that women in the thirties and forties were portrayed. And it almost seemed like for me, you know, when I think about that period, I think that there's like this innate seductive glamour that's sort of pervasive over everything, the way that a woman presents herself and her hair and her clothes. Do you think that there's a shortage of that kind of glamour today in today's society? Like, how do you feel about style trends and the way that women are presented today? Um, I mean, I feel like there's always been kind of like different tribes of people and you, you know, you have that general like sense of what is normal in the world and I I mean I've been I I feel like in the 90s and you know even the early 2000s I was questioned a lot more like oh why are you dressed like that it's weird you know Hmm. (laughs) um but I think it's becoming more acceptable now and people are kind of go oh yeah I get that now because I saw it on tv so um yeah I mean I feel like there's always going to be different people that care about beauty and glamour for different reasons for what it does for them. There's obviously people that will put it down because they think that it's, you know, frivolous or unnecessary. Uh, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's like, it's like anything, you know, there's, there's, there's people that think that glamour is great for the world. And there's people that think it's terrible for the world. Terrible for the world. We call that blasphemy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, especially right now, it's like, you know, people are, um, you know, like nothing should matter except for we should all be reading the news. And you're sort of like, well, I don't know. I think it's also important always when you're going through difficult times to look to enduring beauty and glamour when i say beauty i'm not talking about lipstick necessarily i'm talking about like art and the beauty of the world and 
the art of the exquisite and you know uh, like nature and relationships mean everything and yeah nature and and man-made things that are beautiful i mean i just think um you know it's it's it, there is an importance on it and i'm always trying to think of what's the word besides just beauty but i think it's because i don't want people to think beauty is just like makeup or you're a beauty blogger i'm thinking like mm. beauty in general like things that you're like that's been something enduring something artistic and enduring for that that inspires and makes you feel good or makes you gives you hope or or you know i i don't know i've always been someone who likes to surround myself with beauty and that's why i like going back to why do i like old things you know i found a picture of uh my house in the 90s and i had i had made this like marie antoinette style canopy bed myself with um you know pink satin and black fringe and all this stuff and i i was just like oh i've just always loved decadence and extravagance but it didn't have to be expensive you know it wasn't like about how much money or what I could buy. I was like, I'm going to go buy some of that fabric downtown and I'm going to, you know, try to fashion a fancy bed for myself. You know, I've kind of just always liked to like to surround myself with beauty because it makes me feel good. Um, and it makes me, you know, feel like I'm, you know, enjoying my life, the theater of my life to its fullest, you know? Well, that makes sense. I mean, even now, you know, with everything that's going on, people are turning to art, you know, everyone's mm -hmm. in this pandemic, they're trapped at home, but what do they turn to? They turn to things that inspire them. They turn to art and beauty and television and, uh, you know, books, even podcasts, whatever it is that might uh, be creative things that inspire them. So I think, you know, obviously art and beauty are important in times like these personally. Mm -hmm. But I do want to ask you, I want to kind of like take the conversation back a little bit to just your career. Cause I think people, there's probably things people would like to know about you. There's things I would like to know about you. Um, when you were starting out in the beginning of your career, you know, as you mentioned, you started performing locally in nightclubs, but at some point I'm assuming you said to yourself, like, I'm going to take this further. And what kind of prompted you to take performing more seriously and just become who you are today? Um, I feel like the turning point was probably like around 2000 where things kind of changed. And it was more like, I felt like, you know, I was, when I was on the cover of Playboy was, and I, and I remember when the big art, you know, I had this big pictorial and they said all these great things about my show was talking about my show. And I remember reading it and being like, now I've got to live up to this. You know, I, I need to like, live up to the words that are written about this great show I'm doing. So I feel like that was the first time where I thought it could be a real career because it had been mm. just a hobby. You know, it was like something I, you know, even in the nineties, I had all these different jobs. I was like, Oh, I'm a pinup girl. I'm a fetish model. I'm working in the strip club. Um, I'm working in the, elect the, the, the rave scene on the weekends. You know, I was kind of doing all these things thinking that it's just sort of like, my, I was also working in a lingerie store, you know, I sort of always had like lots of jobs. I was never, I never for one minute thought like, Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a model. I'm going to be a burlesque dancer. I always had all these fallback jobs because I didn't, you know, think that it was something that could be like a legit career. Cause I didn't really see anybody that was, you know, there was no, <laughs> there wasn't in the, in, when I started out in the nineties, there wasn't really like a modern burlesque 
pinup performer that had like a real, that had like a real, you know, there was nobody for me to say like, I'm going to be like her. I, you know, I had, I was looking like at Gypsy Rose Lee going, maybe I can have a career like Gypsy, but I kind of didn't really think it was possible. I didn't really think like, oh, I can do what she did. I thought like, oh, that was, she could do that because you know, this, that, and the other back then, and things were different back then. And there were big burlesque shows back then. And, um, so I didn't ever expect to like, you know, kind of make a real legit career. I kind of always had it in my mind that it was my like fun times when I was young, you know, this fun thing I used to do when I was young. And even when I was in my twenties, I remember just thinking like, Oh, I'm going to be, you know, this is going to be like documenting my youth, you know, my, Mm -hmm. my, these pinup pictures and these shows. And, you know, I'm going to just save as much money as I can because one day I'm just going to be married and have kids and I'm going to look back on this fondly. Like that's really what what my 20 something year old brain thought. Mm. So it wasn't really until, um, later that I kind of felt like it was a legit career. And, and, and when I was like in the early two thousands was when I actually had like a manager and a publicist, because up until then I had been working with a fax machine and a fake name and, uh, (laughs) a a fake email. Like that was my manager's email, you know, so your humble roots. Uh, but I have to say you just in you saying that, like there was no, um, role model to say, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of blank. I mean, I kind of still think that you are, you're still singular. Like, do you see any girls or any other performers coming up that may be able, not to say fill the shoes of Dita Von Tees, but are following along the same lines? Because none really come to yeah, mind. Really? I don't know. I feel like the burlesque is booming and it's a big, like a big business now. I feel, I feel like I see like that there's a lot of working burlesque performers, you know? I feel like there's I think tons you cross of like showbiz pop culture I mean, icon kind of status. I think maybe yeah. that maybe is what you're, that's what you're referring I'm to because yeah. yeah, no one could, but that's the thing there, there was no Dita before Dita. So I kind of feel like, uh, even though burlesque is huge now, I don't, I don't see, I don't think at least, and it's not necessarily my business, but I don't see, uh, someone rising to that sort of pop stardom to me. Well, I mean, we, ne- we never know. I mean, right. I don't know. I don't, I don't, it's hard for me to like relate to it. Cause I don't see things that I don't see me the way other people see me. I don't know. I'm just seeing my, I don't, I don't know. I, I always feel like, you know, spe- like right now in this like whole quarantine thing, I'm like, Oh, was that my last show that I just did? Because are wow. we going to have shows again? You know, I, I was yeah. honestly just like, wow. And I had that feeling like a couple years ago where I was like, I'm not ready to like do my last show. I maybe should I be retiring? Um, and then I didn't, I decided to like make the show bigger and better than ever and kind of talk myself out of like a retirement. But I do, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I just see like, you know, that whole thing. You're only as good as your last show, you know, <laughs> I always sure. feel like that. Like I don't sit here going, Oh, I did all this like amazing stuff. Or remember when I did this? Remember when I did that? Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that. I'm just like, what am I doing right now? And I want to do something cool. I want to make something new. And um, I don't know. I guess that's the way I, way I see it. I, I don't, I'm always looking to like, see what else I can do to make it bigger and better. You know, making what, shows more, you know, take it to a place where it hasn't been yet, you know. Do you think, you know, with things changing and uh, obviously who knows how long this whole pandemic will go on, would you ever diversify what you do and try to, you know, take it to a digital stage or something like that? Is that something you've yeah, thought yeah, about yeah. at all? 
Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been working on some things like that. Um, that I can't really talk about. You know, I'm very like superstitious about talking yeah. about stuff that's like mm-hmm. it hasn't sure. happened because you know in showbiz we're so used to like getting getting excited about a project and then it's like that project can be dropped you know just like just like right now with the pandemic how many how many people's plans have gone astray right now so i'm always i always feel like that though because we've i I don't i don't know about you but i mean i've had like so many showbiz disappointments in my entire career i mean there's been amazing things too but i mean i'm just saying i never count on anything till it happens but yeah i have um i have some some ideas and things that some irons in the fire as they they say and and of course digital's more important than ever i've just been kind of like going slow on how i do it because i want to make sure that it's like uh i i did i did actually film something at the top of the year right but right before everyone went into isolation i had um I, I filmed something really high tech and really cool that I think uh, <laughs> and I, that I'm looking forward to coming out. Oh, it is, I like bringing technology, you know, like I did the first like hologram strip teases and, and video projection mapping with strip tease. Like I love bringing burlesque and strip tease and things that are, you know, old fashioned um, together with technology. So I, I get really excited about different ways of doing that. And you did the dress uh, with Michael Schmidt too, right? The oh, 3D yeah, printed that, dress. Yeah. So that's yes. a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We, for what it's worth, we did, uh, we also did a digital sort of, and a live performance slash movie production thing that we put out. Cause we also were like, do we want to do this or do we just sort of want to wait it out? And I think we mm-hmm. wanted to challenge ourselves creatively and we did it. And just uh, long story short, it was fantastic. So I encourage you to do it. I think you'll, you'll find it creatively challenging. and rewarding. Yeah. 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 It is what it is. Yeah. Um, do you ever have fantasies about sort of leaving the entertainment world behind and just kind of living a completely different life or a quieter life somewhere or anything like that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I fantasize all the time about like packing up and leaving Los Angeles and living in some like remote American castle somewhere like a fixer upper. (laughs) Just like, like, you know, I was actually saying like, this is kind of a moment in time where we're really going to find out whether we can spend um, months at a time away from, you know, our friends or whatever, you know, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. like, so it's actually making me kind of like, okay, is this what it would be like if I really did live in that amazing Victorian house in Iowa or mm-hmm. is it not, you know, is that, am I okay with being by my, like alone and kind of like in seclusion and, you know, but there, cause there's always an airplane ride away from where you want to be. So I guess, um, I don't know, I guess I, I like show business. I like, producing shows i always kind of saw myself as like one of those ladies when you, you see this in paris like at, at the lido or moulin rouge um where there's like a lady that used to be one of the showgirls, used to be a bluebell girl or something and then she's 90 and she's still sitting there and she's like directing and still kind of like there to go not don't do it like this do it like yeah. that you know oh. like the, the person that's directing i always saw myself as being that person i love <laughs> love love that for you i love producing that for you. yeah because i feel like i i i mean i always imagine me and Catherine doing that because we still have like in as far as creating burlesque shows it's like we have a bunch of ideas of more stuff that we want to do you know um and i just think like okay when i'm not doing it i sure would like to be creative in that way still um 
you know, and, and produce, produce other talent and, and, and be on the other side of, of, of being, you know, the, the star, I don't need to be the star of the show to know that it's rewarding to produce something like that. So you, you enjoy know? producing content. Yeah. I, I understand that. That's interesting yeah. to know. I mean, I personally think you're quite a few years off from that. My opinion. I have a feeling you have a lot more to, to surprise everyone with. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, but that's interesting to know, you know, that producing is fulfilling to you as well as, as being the star and the performer. Mm-hmm. So you've had a lot of success so far. What would you like to do next? Is there anything that you sort of want to try? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm trying. Let's see. What about, <laughs> I've been it's like working, lion um, taming. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no. Um, but I, I last year I started working with some magicians on some illusions. So that's mm-hmm. been really fun, like to step out of my comfort zone and, and like work with these master magicians on and learn from them. So that was really fun for me. Uh, my New Year's Eve show is kind of like I did a little bit of the magic that I learned and I learned a kind of a, uh, what, what, several magicians are telling me is a more quite a complicated trick so i'm very um i've been loving doing that just mostly like stepping out of like my world or like my my own like authority of what i know how to do and step into something else and be like the one that wants to learn and says like how can i do it better what can what do you have to teach me you know like taking uh like a I like stepping from my confidence into like a vulnerability where I'm like, I don't know how to do this. I don't think I can do this, you know, that frustration and wanting to learn. Um, so I like doing things like that. Like this idea of, of magic though, because, you know, I think the art of burlesque and in particular, your, the level of the craft that you've brought it to is filled with like visual magic already, but to mix it with like literal stage magic seems like such an exciting <laughs> marriage. It makes so much sense. Yeah. I mean, to me, it did too. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I think I need to do this. Cause I was also thinking like, how do I evolve? Like I'm always thinking about how do I evolve my career? You know, like I, the shows that I did in the nineties and even early two thousands, like, I don't want to do the same show. I mean, I, yeah, I have, I do the martini and champagne glass in different ways, but I'm always like, how do I evolve that into something like, instead of it being girlishly pinup, style like how do I make that womanly and like you know powerful instead of just like what I originally how I originally did it which was like an homage to like the pinup girl so I kind of like always you know I think about what I can do to evolve burlesque so that I can still do it and produce shows um and so magic seemed like one of those things that I, you know, that made sense to me there's so much to do with it and then also working with magicians that are like oh my god that's like you know, they love figuring things out. That's what magicians do is you say like, I wish I could do this. And they go, well, our, now we sit down and we figure out how we make that illusion work. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. So um, yeah, magic and, and, and striptease uh, can be a lot of fun. On New Year's Eve, I did like a, a whole thing where I, um, I do it, you know, I do the show at the Orpheum Theater every New Year's, hopefully this New Year's too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but I opened the show and there was like a masked magician that made me appear in a crystal box. And then, um, 
I got out of the crystal box and I did a strip tease. It was a no, no, no small feat to figure out how to actually do, because these tricks are kind of like, some of them are very physical. And so yeah. when you try to put extravagant costumes into it, there are a bunch of challenges. I mean, I, uh, I worked with um, Jenny Packham, who's like this British uh, designer, and it was really difficult to try to figure out how to adapt the kind of costumes that we, you know, that I love into magic because there's a lot of parameters for magic um so anyway i appeared in the box and did some tricks and i levitated and then the magician pulled the cloth off the uh the levitation while i was levitating in the air and then the magician turns around and takes off the mask and it's me so we did like this whole like this big montage of different magic tricks into one big wow i love that sounds so exciting with strip tease so it was really fun and then um i did another thing with this this illusion called the floating rose to actually like work on something for a whole year you know i worked on all those those tricks for a year in my living room um and that's the and, thing with your performance for people that haven't seen you live. I mean, you're so meticulous. I, uh, I mean, of all the performers that we've seen in our in our careers, you, you ju- are just the most rehearsed, but present it so naturally. So I've never seen anyone uh, perform like you do. So uh, that's very nice. I mean, I'm not like I always say. You know, I'm not like a you know I don't go out there trying to do crazy choreography because I always kind of liked things to look like it's nothing mm-hmm. um like very simple you know like yeah. a nonchalant and carefree and you're not like wow she's really dancing you know i mean i i'm not like discounting when there's an amazing dancer but i have this tendency to be really i love watching people um on stage that are not like you can you, it looks effortless even yeah. if it's not effortless it looks effortless like when i watch uh my favorite two dancers of all time Sid Charisse or Fred Astaire like they're technically amazing incredible dancers but when it's magic like I am always analyzing those moments the in-between moments like that are not the fancy footwork but like Mm -hmm. how someone breathes into something before they move into it or like the way when Sid Charisse does one tiny little thing and you're like that's she just did that by like with the shoulder and you know like that's the kind of stuff that gets me going because that's actually really really hard to do to look to do something in a very effortless and natural way you know yeah absolutely. oh certainly as you're describing all this like you you can you can sense the excitement you can sense the the like adoration that you have for watching something like that. And I find myself just like with the big cheesiest smile, <laughs> listening to someone else get so excited about things like that, because that was the feeling that I had when I first saw you perform. Cause it was a very effortless thing. And, and, and I don't, I appreciate your, you know, the humble nature that you're approaching it with, but you own that because you really do bring that effortlessness and to watch it is a joy. Well, thank you. But it really comes from though. I just want to say like the reason that I look to that is that, you know, I grew up wanting to be a ballet dancer so badly and I'm just terrible. Okay. I can't retain choreography. I can't do fancy footwork. I can't move very fast. I have a lot of like limitations on my dance ability. So that's why I look to other things and other ways, you know, like, so I, I feel like that's kind of the message I'm always trying to give, give to people is like the things that are your 
downfalls can sometimes become your strengths in life if you look very closely you know so that's 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 what i'm trying to get at you know it's like i knew that i couldn't go out there and do high kicks and like you know do 10 pirouettes or anything and do this impressive Mm -hmm. dancing but i did so i kind of found other things to be inspired by that i felt like i can do that you know so that's that's where it comes from it's not like just like oh i uh, you know what i'm saying it's like, no, totally. it's just like you have to Track. like that you sounds... start you start you've realized like the thing you know i always think if i had been a great dancer if i had been born being like this amazing dancer i would have never been a burlesque dancer i would have never been like i'm gonna be a stripper i would have been like i'm gonna be a dancer and i'm mm. gonna go try to be part of new york city ballet like uh, but me not being able to do any of those things is what made me go into burlesque and you know, if I, if you know what I'm saying, sometimes yeah, the absolutely. things that are your, your, your weaknesses become your strengths. And that's Dita, how I you, you are life. speaking like, uh, I, I think we've literally been quoted as saying something almost exactly to that. It's one of the mantras of the way that we live our lives, which is taking the thing that you might've been ridiculed over or the thing that makes you other or the things that you might've perceived as a weakness mm-hmm. and transforming it. And it becomes your strength and it becomes the reason yeah. ultimately that you're celebrated and you're successful. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. It's like been a total pleasure catching up with you and kind of getting to know you a little better. So thank you so much. Such a joy. Yeah, likewise. It was fun to have a nice, nice chat after yeah, all this time. Yeah, it really was. Oh, she was so fantastic. So fun chatting with her. I love that. Yeah, she was really down to earth and fun to talk to. I think a lot of people don't get that. She, just like us, they don't get the chance to, you know, they see her live or they see her uh, on TV or in different projects. They don't get to hear her regular everyday voice and what her life is like and her thoughts and opinions. It was really entertaining. Exactly. Job well done, Drac. Thank you. I did put on my glasses <laughs> for the interview. Even though she can't see me, it made me feel smarter and ask more poignant questions. You know what? I keep a picture of the two of us at my recording studio and I'm going to draw those glasses right on your picture. Yes. I think that was great. I'm really glad she was able to join us. I think we're going to move on to the Belay Brothers Creatures of the Night movie review. <laughs> so let's welcome Ian back, uh, as we always do, and uh, talk about the movie choice for this week. I got to choose this week's movie pick, and the movie that I picked is called Extraordinary. It's directed by Inda Lauman and Mike Ahern. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it first, and then we'll get into your deepest thoughts on the film. Alright, so it was originally released in the UK in 2019, but it was just released here in March 2020 as the pandemic set in, which sort of ruined its premiere. So we were, you know, we watch a lot of films at the Alamo Draft House. Plug there. Please send us a check. And, um... <laughs> we kept seeing previews for this movie and it just looked really quirky and weird and cute and interesting and scary. So... We, you know, we were looking forward to watching it, but obviously the pandemic happened, all the theaters closed down and we couldn't see it. So we did get our hands on a copy and it started streaming on Amazon Prime. So I thought it would be good for us to review this movie because I feel like its premiere kind of got sat on a little bit. So hopefully this will give it a little boost and people can go check it out because it really is a, a an interesting movie. Um, yeah, so it's an Irish indie dark comedy ghost movie. Uh, it said it was based on a true story, but I have yet to find anything backing that up. So maybe they just said that as tongue and cheek. Um, and yeah, the basic outline is that it's a Irish paranormal ghost hunter who falls in love 
with a man who is seeking her help with a satanic cult that is set on sacrificing his daughter. So that's the that's kind of the loose outline. What did you all think of the film? Look, if you have a satanic cult in your film, in my book, you can't go wrong. Honestly. <laughs> I mean, it, it's weird. That description kind of reminds me of how I started working for you guys. Like, I think my dad contacted my mom. The satanic cult is you guys. You know, that sort of thing. Exactly. Uh, and we, we're still uh, bent on sacrificing you, our daughter. <laughs> I'm sure you would wish that we had used some sort of dildo divining rod to find you, but we didn't. Much like the movie. Not <laughs> a virgin either. <laughs> I'm not a virgin. There's no dildo divining rod, but there is a lot of uh, strange white-colored ectoplasm uh, in my life. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. So what did you guys think? I actually... I loved it. I was really, really surprised. I think you guys know this about me. I have a really hard time connecting the worlds of horror and comedy. And I find that anytime that I'm watching a horror movie and they crack a joke, I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I, I'm not into this anymore. Like, I'm not scared. But with Extraordinary, I thought it was so cute. Um, it, to me, it was more of a, a dark rom-com with kind of horror elements, but the the super dry humor and the character of Rose, played by Maeve Higgins, I was like, I love you. Like, I love this. I love this woman. She's so strange and quirky. I feel like I am her sometimes. I thought it was really cute. I I will back that up. I also feel like you are her too. I don't know. I feel like you're the girlfriend ordering the food and being a total (gasps) cunt. Oh, totally. (laughs) I can see Ian as Rose, but if I had a second choice, it'd be like the pregnant slutty sister. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Now, sometimes when you wake Ian up in the morning, like you spoke about earlier when I call you and you have your trashy grandma voice on, mm-hmm. as I like to call it, you kind of seem like the wife that was possessing the husband. <laughs> oh my God. Totally. Well, speaking of that, I was super impressed with, uh, I guess his name is Barry Ward and I, I'm totally unfamiliar with him outside of this movie, but when they started to do the possessions, I was like, oh my God, he's such a good comedic actor. Like he was playing all these different characters kind of like at the drop of a hat. Um, yeah. I thought he was great. No, yeah. that was exceptional. That was extraordinary. No, the performance what? was great. He really was <laughs> taking on those characters so well. It was really believable. It kind of brought you there instantly, which could have been done very badly and made those scenes seem super hokey. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. You know, so Ian... Overall, you feel like, despite your usual disdain for comedy and horror being mixed, you have a favorable opinion of the film. Yeah. I Was it a perfect movie? No. Does it need to be? No. I liked it. I laughed a lot. And for a comedy, I feel like that's the best judge of quality. What do you think, Swan? What was your take on it? I'm going to back it up. I'm kind of gagged that Ian liked it as much as he did because, you know, we, we Jack and I watched it together and I looked at Jack and I'm like, Ian's going to hate this movie because I know how you <laughs> feel about your comedy mixed with your horror. And, uh-huh. But you guys also know that I love that combo. Um and it, it always works for me. Death Becomes Her and Beetlejuice was a couple of favorites that just, you know, really work for me when mm-hmm. it's, I like to laugh and be scared and it's a mix. And this movie really checked both of those boxes, I think, kind of evenly. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. And I kind of feel like they, there were a little homages in there, a, a very um, clear one to like the <gasps> exorcist. Yes. You saw it and they, and, and they skipped the, the go-to like obvious kind of ghostbuster joke and actually picked up on the exorcist reference, which I thought was kind of cool because some of these parts generally was kind of dark and scary. Like where, mm-hmm. where it, it, the pendulum swung to comedy, it equally swung just as far to be like, Oh, okay. We're going straight into like demon summoning 
bodies like exploding mangled gore and you know which also made it very fun and unexpected the thought that came to me was like this is like kind of like ghostbusters like foreign exchange little sister who's like way weirder and scarier way weirder and scarier than like her american host family and that kind of wraps it up I think that's a pretty good description. I had fa- a favorable view of the movie in general, but there's a couple of things that I that stood out to me that almost verged on ruining it for me. One being once they finally did summon this ghost, devil, whatever it was, mm. uh, the little the jokes or whatever that he was making, it kind of like took the whole thing a little too far to me. I don't know. Maybe everybody else didn't feel that uh, way. No, I hear that. No, yeah, I, I totally feel you. I, I think I was willing to maybe overlook it because... Again, I'm not a huge fan of comedy, and sometimes when it goes in that direction, I'm like, okay, this is exactly why. Um, but I don't know. I think by the end, I was like, I've already been through so much of this movie. I've seen this guy vomit up this ectoplasm like nine times. One virginity joke isn't going to ruin my day, uh, but it almost yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, well, it just, you know, there's a certain, there, there's definitely an art to mixing humor and horror. And I felt like they did a pretty good job. The dry humor works really well. But just that one part, I was like, okay, it kind of went off. It's almost like when you're filming for too long on one day and you start doing goofy shit because you're like on hour 14. You know, we've all been there. Yeah, it almost right. felt like that. I was like, okay, that was too far. But Overall, I mean, I thought it was pretty interesting. I also really liked the soundtrack. I thought that little Mm -hmm. tune that sort of played, I don't know, I thought it was cute, you know? I think cute's a great word. I kind of want to touch on one of the other technical um, uh, details about about the movie. You talked about the soundtrack. The camera work was really interesting. They did like these uncomfortable and kind of unexpected shifts that would kind of isolate some of the characters, like almost in their own thoughts. And then it would like shift the other way and they'd go like right through the wall or like right through the floor, which kind of made characters feel very connected or like Mm. rushing through the hallway um, up until like one of the first times that we see the dark rituals kind of happening. It goes all the way from the exterior in one sweeping shot forward through the yard, through the opening of the mansion, through the halls, into the room, and then right onto the like pentagram on the ground. Mm -hmm. It's got an interesting camera work. Yeah. And with the the bird as well, like, I don't know if you remember when they first introduced the bird, you know, the two sisters were standing at the, the grave site and it kind of jolted up quickly to the bird and back down, you know, that kind of established the bird as relevant. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't so much pick up on the camera, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh my God, that is such a great point. The The other thing that I loved about uh, kind of changing perspective was the the old school videotapes, like the VHSs that uh, yeah. Rose would watch of her dad. I could watch that entire series, like that sort of <laughs> ultra dry, strange humor. Like I'm like, oh, I, this this pings a lot of boxes for me. Um, I, those were probably my favorite sections going into uh, the history of like what her dad used to do. I love those parts. Well, I think overall, fun movie, especially for these times, a laugh isn't bad. So if you're interested in watching it, make sure you go back and watch Extraordinary Streaming now on Amazon Prime. And with that, I think we're going to go into what's quickly becoming my favorite section of the podcast, our hauntings of history. (laughs) So we all bring a haunting of history to the meeting, and then we decide who's won that week. And this week, I think Ian's won, so why don't you take it away? Thank you. Uh, Well, in honor of our guest, the deadly beauty, Dita Von Tees, I wanted to find a haunting that kind of connected something glamorous with something really scary. And so I did some digging into the haunted history of mirrors. 
like I said, I got super inspired by Dita as well as, you know, you two glamour ghouls. Um, and it turns out there's a really rich history of the occult, mysticism, and the paranormal with mirrors. And just to give you like some tidbits, mirrors have always been seen as a way to like look into the realm beyond the living, um, even referred to as portals or gateways between the living and the dead, which has some like terrifying real life implications that I'll get to. But um, like crystal balls, uh, you can use a mirror for scrying or the process of trying to connect the spirit world through the glass. Um, kind of a famous haunted mirror. Uh, Bella Lugosi apparently used a mirror to try to contact his dead wife. And that mirror is now supposedly super haunted. Uh, if you look into it, you can see ghosts, you can see spirits, you can see demons. And it lives in something called Zach Baggins Haunted Museum. Interesting. I wonder if you look into it, can you see yourself though? Oh, you, you see a little too much of yourself in that mirror. <laughs> Sometimes that can be equally as scary, depending on what stage of makeup we're in. <laughs> oh, my God. You know how we have our meeting and we give you your week's tasks. Uh-huh. One of your tasks this week is to acquire this mirror. <laughs> Bring it back <laughs> to the castle. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Return with the mirror or don't return at all. <laughs> oh, my God. I will see you guys in two weeks for the next episode. Um, no, but so um, kind of uh, along that line, I started to look into kind of supernatural stuff and superstitions. And this is some stuff I didn't know. There are a lot of different cultures around the world that have rituals involving covering mirrors when someone dies. Mm-hmm. And they do that so that their souls don't become trapped in the mirrors. And it goes so oh, far as to say, yeah, and it go, some cultures go so far as to say that if you leave a mirror uncovered you're essentially inviting uh the like the the realm of the dead or the spirit world into your home i had some family that did that as well so i am familiar with this custom oh really yeah mm-hmm. wow um well the other thing that i and you guys know this. I love urban legends. Like, I love spooky ghoul shit. So I kind of did some reading about the urban legend of, like, Bloody Mary. And I think everyone is kind of familiar with this. Uh, you stand in, like, a darkened bathroom and you say, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. And you, like, chant it a certain number of times. And the urban legend goes that if you say it correctly and it's the right conditions, she'll appear in the mirror and scare you or she'll kill you. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I absolutely had that kind of experience, you know, whatever it was, like junior high or maybe even a little earlier when I think, I don't know why children become interested in that kind of stuff, like between, I don't know, 9, 10, 11, 12, like somewhere in there, like nursery rhymes, which I think are also really kind of interesting, almost like, I, I, I'm mm-hmm. sure there are folklores and almost like superstition and spells revolving around rhymes and r- repeating words more than more than once and that kind of thing. And Bloody Mary was definitely one that we used to, you know, it scared me. I, I was scared to do it, but of course you build yourself up and then you do it. And you know, here I am. Oh uh, girl, I have still alive. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that you're still alive because I have never been able like, this is a total pansy thing, but I, I literally can't do it. It freaks girl, me out. Come so on. It freaks me out so bad. Like, and I think it, it actually, <laughs> it stems from like a fear that I have of someone being inside the house and, you know, kind of like if you look into a mirror and, you know, there's tons of movies where like they close the mirror and suddenly oh, the killer is behind them. Sure. Um, and I found this super fascinating instance of a time where people were literally coming through a mirror to murder someone. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that is the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy. Um, you can Google Ruthie McCoy murder and you can find out all the details. But to give you kind of the basic outline uh, Ruth McCoy lived and was murdered in the Chicago housing projects in 1987. When the authorities finally came to check on her after like multiple calls, they found that the killers came into her apartment through her bathroom mirror. 
Wait a minute. What do you mean? Okay, so the way that they did it was in the Chicago housing projects, you could take the mirror out of the bathroom and it would connect to the apartment adjacent to it. And they did that so that the plumbers could get in and out of the buildings or in and out of the apartments without having to like knock on everyone's doors. So you could theoretically, yeah, you could get into one apartment, you could bust down the window or bust down the mirror, get inside like the in-between, go vertical or just go into the next apartment. Anyway, wow, oh my God, that's so scary. But you know, depending on your mood, it could either be like a horror movie or a porn. Or like a porno you know? movie. <laughs> I knew you were going there. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I'm definitely... It comes to the mirror, you know, whatever. Anyway, it sounds like an 80s movie to me. <laughs> Look into your mirror and a man comes out. <laughs> Ooh, yes. Oh Holy shit. Um, kind of t- <laughs> just wow. ruined it. <laughs> totally. I'm like, well, there goes the haunting. No, but uh, uh, I mean, this is really intriguing. I love hearing this kind of stuff. So, like, tell us more details. Yeah. So, essentially, they found that the people who had been, uh, I guess, I guess the term would be squatting in the apartment next to her were either, you know, drug related or gang related. And they had uh, just pushed the mirror through, come into her apartment, shot her four times, taken a bunch of her belongings, and then left without ever having to, you know, be seen or enter the apartment. Um, and it was a, a real fear that people had around that time that you could get murdered or, you know, have your things stolen to the point that there's documentation that people in the Chicago housing projects would put furniture in front of the bathroom door or like bolt it shut or do things like that at night as extra security. Wow. Mm-hmm. Imagine having yeah. to take those measures to feel safe at night. That's crazy. Girl. Well, the other thing, kind of last things, which I thought this was kind of cool, um, Clive Barker, as we all know and love, uh, he wrote a short story called The Forbidden in 1985, which was about kind of uh, an adaptation of like the Bloody Mary myth. And it was, you know, you say the killer's name three times in the mirror, and then he comes out and kills you with a hook. Uh, the film Candyman comes out. And Candyman is a direct adaptation of this short story, but also directly references the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy to have its Chicago backdrop and setting. Mm. But I think all this is really interesting. And anybody at uh, home listening, if you have any more info on the Ruthie Mae McCoy murders or any sort of magical mirror superstitious tales you want to share with us, you can always email us at creatures at bullybrothersdragula.com and let us know. We might read it on air. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. So let's take a few listener questions before we go. And uh, remember, everyone listening at home, you can email us your questions about anything you've heard here on the podcast or about any of the projects we're working on at creatures at com. Swan, are you ready to answer a few probing questions? I'm always ready for a probing question. All right, so our first question is, are there any behind-the-scenes stories from filming the Blade Brothers Dragula that we're willing to share? No. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> we've told, we've told the Loris one several times, and that's probably one of the most, uh, unnerving ones where we were on set in the Death Valley and she had a the allergic reaction. Her throat was closing and we thought, wow, either someone's going to die or this, um, this entire day of shooting and this production is lost. Um, and it was really scary, but neither of which happened. She like sort of rebounded and just needed to be cooled off and some water. There is the time I made a producer cry on the show. Oh, that was wonderful. Yeah. I know you're really proud of that. I'm not proud of that, actually. And I'm a little disappointed because if you remember at the time, I actually didn't even react or do anything. I tried to control myself. I used every ounce of willpower. And I still cried. But anyways, I'll quickly tell the story. Um, no, it's a good one. 
you know, we, so we were filming the finale of the Blade Brothers Dragula season one and we did the Last Supper and we had these very pristine white outfits that we had just gotten delivered. They, you know, were, they were being made and we paired them with these headpieces we had made. And so we were ready for our close up for the finale. And, um, you know, we always do our like dynamics where we walk in with our outfits and they show us from head to toe and everything. Well, we went to sit down to film the, Last Supper and Swan, you and I sat down and there was glasses of blood and red wine all over the table. Well, we were about ready to start and um, one of the producers came to fix something on the table, knocked over a giant glass of blood that just flowed across the table all over my outfit. <laughs> oh my god and i was so pissed because especially back then on season one we were kind of like let's not make let's not make it about us so we didn't really do a lot of the dynamics and stuff uh on the first season um so that was sort of like our moment to kind of shine and show this great outfit and start the reunion so yeah that i, I was so i can't even explain it was like mrs white and clue like flames on the side of my head <laughs> and yeah so i stood up Everyone went silent and I stood up and to make it more dramatic and I was trying to control myself and keep the drama down. When I stood up, the metal chair I was sitting in shot back off of the stage onto the concrete floor and made this crazy sound that echoed through. <laughs> and I just said, I need a minute. And I walked outside. And, and he burst into tears. It, you could have cut that tension and that silence with a knife. It was intense. I know, you know, I can be intense when we're filming. I know that. I try my hardest to be well-behaved, but they, we do have a lot of pressure on us. And um, yeah, I felt really bad because I really love the producer and I wish that hadn't happened, but uh, he had to learn, you know? <laughs> and that he did. <laughs> All right, let's get another question. All right, what are our favorite heavy metal bands? Oh, wow. Yeah. Let's just throw out some random ones. I love Metallica. I love Metallica too. Like I'm super inspired by Combi Christ right now. We do a lot of performances to their music. And yeah. um, little known fact, and this kind of ties into the first question. Uh, one of their songs was actually playing during the uh, Thunderdome battle at the finale, you know, closer to the finale of season, uh, season two, when the yeah. girls were battling that Combi Christ song was going off and oh, I gave me goosebumps. Like just it was amazing. Electric. And we tried to get the rights to the song so that we could play it so that uh, people watching the show could really live that moment. Cause that moment was such uh, an incredible moment. So full of energy that you just had to be there to experience. And I wish we could have got it, but we got very close and then it just kind of fell apart at the last minute because of time. Yeah. But um, they wanted to do it. Combi Cars was like, yeah, do it. So, you know, we tried to make it happen. Um, yeah. So Combi Christ, Metallica. I mean, look, we, me and you both kind of like go insane with heavy metal every once in a while. Like when we're driving and stuff, we'll kind of play a lot of yeah, like, sure, like Guns N' Roses, ACDC. Um, even yeah, some old, and, like, 70s stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, that's kind of, like, more glam rock to me. But we always mix that and heavy metal together and kind of rock out to it. So, um, let's see. What else? This is a good question. Does wearing the whiteout lenses for live appearances to keep up with the look get frustrating? 
Mm, I think over time, I've become very desensitized to the discomfort. At first, it was something that I couldn't kind of get my mind off of. But you have to imagine, uh, with the eyes, yes, of course, like not being able to see or having your eye, your eyesight impeded by like probably like 60 or 70% is only one part of it because I'm also like usually wrapped in latex and sucked in so I can barely breathe. And I'm on six inch heels and I have like, you know, claws on every finger of my hand. I can't touch my face. I can't touch anything. I can't do anything. So what's a little like blindness? It kind of just all (laughs) blends together. I can handle it all. Our drag has to be the most uncomfortable drag on the face of the earth. I mean, it's level 10 uncomfortable. And especially when we're filming and then people start strapping, uh, you know, microphones to you and battery packs. And, and then especially with the whiteout, something people might not know about whiteout contacts is when you're on stage and you have whiteout contacts in, there's a certain kind of light that if that light comes on and it somehow always does every time we make an appearance, you're blind. I mean, you literally cannot see your hand if you put it in front of your face. So when you're sort of trying to guesstimate how much uh, room you have to get to the edge of the stage before you fall off into the crowd or if you're trying to see if people are like raising their hand or whatever you can't see anything at all so I do think it's annoying I mean sometimes I wonder what it would be like to be like some of our other friends that are different kind of drag artists like Laganja uh, wears a very you know sometimes she'll wear very skimpy things and she doesn't have all those she can do flips and cartwheels and stuff I mean if, her drag calls for that type of stuff because you yeah. know wearing wearing pads and being impeded or super cinched or you know not being able to see very well you know that wouldn't work for the way that she performs she's really acrobatic and she's a, a really talented dancer so um she has to dress the part but damn sometimes I look at the way she's dressed and I'm like bitch I want to I want to show up to the gig looking like that because it is just like a vacation it seems comfortable it is yeah it's true it makes it makes drag very exhausting I'll say so I'll let that be uh, lead into our last question which is what is our favorite part of getting into drag and do we enjoy performing when we're not in drag oh my favorite part of getting into drag and interject here if you have your own answer because I need to yeah you answer and I'll answer too Okay. Um, my favorite part of getting into drag, I feel like when you paint your face, or at least when I paint mine, it's, it's so many little parts. And once they're all done, and usually the last thing that I do is like my lips. So when I finally put the lip on and I look in the mirror, it's like all of those little parts kind of accumulate to establish the visage for the night like this is what i look like tonight and it's kind of like this moment of like realization it's like the spirit of swan thula has entered the body and now Mm -hmm. i am complete it's kind of a magic moment it is that final stroke of the lipstick yeah and for me and it always changes but right now it's highlight it's something about just putting on that highlight and I save it for the end and I'm like, yes. And I look in the mirror and I can turn my head and I can see it and I'm like, all right, I'm ready. You know, that's oh, my yeah. favorite part at the moment. Um, do we enjoy performing when not in drag? You know, I know, I think it's been a long time since either of us have performed live out of drag anywhere, yeah. but we, we both have a lot of talents that uh, don't necessarily work for us as a, duo and yeah yeah. so yeah we do we do enjoy performing out of drag i think you like to dance a lot i like to sing you know like drag will perform regularly like in the elevator while i'm finishing making dinner (laughs) uh while we're in the car for me and my friends (laughs) or like just belting it out like we we need to get some behind the scenes on that some i might do a 
a special edition podcast where I let him have it. You should. You should. But you too, you're such a great dancer. And I don't think people, you know, you don't get the chance to flex that all the time. So, um, yeah, I would say, yes, we do enjoy performing when we're not out of drag. Just don't get enough chance to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's everything, right? So thank you for joining us for the Blade Brothers Creatures of the Night. We'll be back in two weeks with another terrifying episode. And until then, join us on our Instagram at Boulay Brothers and send us your feedback via email at creatures at BoulayBrothersDragula.com. <laughs> The Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is a Fangoria Podcast Network original, hosted and produced by Drakmorda and Swanthula Boulay, featuring co-host Ian DeVogler. Executive producers Dallas Sonier and Phil Nobile Jr. Produced by Natasha Posada. Associate producer Jessica Safavamer. Edited and mixed by Ernesto Hurtada. Music by Neuron Spectre. For Fangoria, Brandon Wynardi, Jason Kozlerich, and Rachel Wilson. 